Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Mark Brown. Mark is a 20-year Microsoft veteran and has worked across a number of areas, including mobile, maps, security, and web. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Great to be on the show. Yeah, so uh, before we jump into the meat of things, uh, would you give our listeners maybe a little uh, of an introduction to yourself? Uh, tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure. So uh, it wasn't a straight line for me. I actually went to university to study finance. This would have been back in the late 80s, if I'm going to reveal my advanced age here. And my intention was to do finance and economics. I wanted to do currency trading, actually. It was kind of my life goal. You know, did a little bit of databases and programming, I guess you could call it, back in university. I was basically using things like DBase and Lotus123 macros uh, and building kind of financial and trading models around those things. Uh, it was kind of how I started and stuff, uh, at least using computers to do something and programming them to do something, right? Like do these models, these forecasts and trading models. But I had no intention of getting into computer science. Anyway, fast forward, I graduated into a pretty bad recession. Banks were laying off folks. There was closing down trading floors. Uh, so I ended up working as a chef in a golf resort in Scottsdale, where I grew up. Long story short, they found out I had a degree in finance and said, hey, come work in our accounting department. Started working there. Coworker brought over a copy of a uh, beta copy of Microsoft Access 1.0 and said, hey, my husband says, this is pretty cool. You should check it out. So I checked it out. Uh, six months later, I wrote an Access database app that did my entire job uh, and then realized, hey, that was more fun than doing accounting. I quit and started writing Access apps for a living. So fast forward, you know, I did all that stuff and then joined Microsoft in 2000, like, uh, February 2000. And then shortly after that, you know, we launched .NET. Um, but anyway, Microsoft for just over 20 years now. So, and uh, the nice thing about Microsoft, and I think the reason I've stayed so long is there is no shortage of new things you can learn to do or go do. I've started in services, working on mobile devices. I uh, ended up leaving actually briefly and then came back and did business development and then transitioned into developer marketing and did marketing, technical developer marketing for like 10 years. Uh, and then ended up leaving again for a year because I kind of felt like I was getting away from kind of my engineering roots. I like, I like, I like writing apps. I like writing code all day. Uh, so I left for a year, did consulting, uh, wrote a bunch of apps on Azure, made a whole bunch of money and then decided I wanted to come back. So I came back and been on the PM side now for, I don't know, seven years, six, seven years. That's super cool. Uh, so what, what is your focus, uh, these days? What, what are you working on? Yeah, kind of a broad range of stuff. Um, I used to PM or program manage or product manage, if you will, uh, all of our HA features. When I joined the team, I launched our multi-master or multi-region rights. Now is what it's called. And managed all the HA replication, consistency, 
models. Um, that's I've transitioned that. There's someone else on our team is running that now. I also, I, but I still do manage all of our or PM all of our control plane. So everything management API why so if you provision something if you use an ARM template or PowerShell or CLI or actually anything that hits the resource provider that's technically what it is is the hmm. resource provider so I'm the PM for that but that doesn't take a whole lot of time actually um, most of the other teams service teams write all that stuff uh, I do a lot of the docs and the samples and sit on API review boards and stuff like that. Uh, I spend an inordinate amount of time on Twitter uh, answering people's questions. Stack Overflow, I spend a lot of time on there. There's a Q&A site Microsoft has I spend time on there. Mm. I do a weekly podcast every week. That takes a lot of time. I'm helping program our blogs, editing, just anything that's that's outbound focused, right? Uh, I started a user, a virtual user group for Cosmos. We've had two meetups so far. I've got There's another one this Friday, actually. But so we've got meet, you know monthly meetups, uh, Anything that's about driving awareness about Cosmos, engagement for our, our content, so you're actually reading about us, using demos, trying mm-hmm. Cosmos, all that stuff. That's kind of where I'm, I spend a lot of my time now. I caught your presentation at Microsoft Ignite virtually this year on model and partition your data in Azure Cosmos DB. Before we started recording, I was mentioning to you that we're historically .NET developers with plenty of JavaScript experience as well, primarily SQL Server backends and that type of thing. But we're all more and more utilizing things like Cosmos DB and having to change our mindset from relational databases to NoSQL databases. It's uh, That's great to hear. I mean, Cosmos as a database is really... I mean, our primary audience is developers like you. Right. Like there's no there's no SSMS for Cosmos. You don't there's no Erwin tooling. You know, there's none of that stuff. There's no really awesome rich tooling around it. There's the data explorer and the portal, but you, know, you can run a few queries there and but you can't really do much else. Really the interface uh for Cosmos is our SDKs. Right? So go download a NuGet package, fire it up in Visual Studio, and pop in your endpoint and keys and create a new SDK client instance and uh, start writing code to do CRUD operations or queries or whatever it is you're trying to do um, in there. That's kind of the experience. And there's no DBAs for a database like Cosmos. I mean, the whole promise there is it's fully managed, so there shouldn't be uh, anything to do, hopefully. Uh, There are things to configure. I mean, you can tune your indexes. From a developer standpoint, there actually is a fair amount you have to do and know. It's geared at kind of the developer's job anyway. Like for Cosmos, uh, when you're designing uh, like a data model and a partition strategy for your app, one of the things that's absolutely critical to know is, sure, you want to understand the entities you're dealing with, right? Like what data am I reading and writing? And even the relationships between those. But the most important thing is understanding the access patterns to that data. Like how how am I reading and writing data? And at what data do I need all, all at one time? Because... Kind of an objective in designing for a database like this is you want to optimize uh, not around storage, which is what you would do if you're designing a relational database, right? The whole thing is to getting the third normal third normal form, right? So we want to reduce cross products of data or duplication of data and get it very efficient, and then we just join it all back up at runtime with a query. That doesn't we don't there's no, there are no queries or excuse me there are no joins or any of that stuff in Cosmos. So you have to store the data largely the way you want to use it which means you're going to denormalize the data. You're going to embed 
uh, some entities like arrays of stuff into other entities like a order header and an order details. It's a very different approach. Uh, and what I often say when I'm talking about this is uh, do not approach this as you would a relational database. In fact, you should largely just try to forget everything you think you know about modeling data when you're doing it for Cosmos. The way you use data is the is is what's critical, right? It's almost more important to talk to your UX guy than it is to anybody else because he's the guy that's actually putting together what are the screens going to look like for uh, my data. So where do we get started from that perspective then? Because many years ago, back in the, the good old days when we were modeling for relational databases and deconstructing our objects, we knew how to do that and, and how to move the data into tables and then query and, and assemble them back, like you mentioned. Where do we begin? How do we start modeling our data? How do we start with partitioning patterns and things like that to make sure that we are designing appropriately? Yeah, there's uh, an increasing amount of content that we've produced lately to help users get started with this. Uh, well, I've got a GitHub repo that I've put together that has kind of a presentation that I give, <clears throat> but also has like all the demo and sample code. We've also taken and ported this content uh, and these concepts into a couple of MS Learn modules. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, MS Learn is their, the Microsoft's kind of online lab environment, if you will. You know, you, you start a module and it walks you through some concepts and some content. And then you maybe have like a knowledge check every so often. And then even exercises that you can fire up kind of a virtual environment, like in a VM, I think it is. You can actually go and learn these concepts. You don't even need an Azure subscription to do this stuff. It's all virtual uh, you just fire up the VM, the account is there, it's hydrated with all kinds of data, and, and you can walk through it. Uh, so that's an option too, um, if you don't want to like clone a repo and then do this on your own account. You know, we did a session at Ignite just recently, uh, Ignite 2021, where myself and a teammate of mine kind of walked through all of this. We actually, it was the Learn Live sessions they have, so they made us kind of walk through kind of one of those modules and explain all the concepts. That's quite helpful because learn modules are quite concise. When I give the talk, I, I provide lots of examples, if you will, for what makes a good partition key or a good partitioning strategy. It's kind of one of the one of the strange things, I guess, if you will, about a database like this is you sometimes have to solve for things that are at odds with each other. Uh, I'll give you an example. So in a partition data store, the way throughput is applied to it, it's it's a, it's spread evenly across these these physical partitions, which are basically it's, partition is just another word for a server. Um, and each server has its own compute, like its own CPU, its own memory, its own I/O. We create a proxy around that, and that's called a request unit. And so when you provision request units, you're provisioning compute. Our storage is actually sits on cluster with that compute, so it's actually local. The SSDs are actually local to where the the CPUs are which is good because that gives you really fast response times for, for reading and writing data. When you provision this, you get a slice of that compute, right? And of course, a bit of that storage in there as well. And then you just keep adding to it. And these are all kind of isolated pieces of compute, these physical partitions. When you're writing data, especially if you're writing at a very high volume, you want to make sure that you're spreading the compute or spreading those writes over as much of that compute as you can because each of, each of those different partitions has its own computer, has its own CPU and memory and I.O. So if you're writing a large volume of data, but you're only hitting one of those, mm. then you're bottlenecking on it. You're, and then also not only that, but you also have 
unused compute sitting there. It's like provisioning a like one of those big v, one of those big uh, 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 VMs and then playing solitaire on it, right? Like you wouldn't do that because it's costing you a ton of money and you're not utilizing it fully. The whole point is to fully utilize the compute that you've provisioned because why else would you provision it? Conversely, on the other side, if you're doing queries, you you want to try to have those queries be served by as few partitions as possible in most cases. In some cases, it's okay to hit all of them uh, if you can do them in parallel and if it makes sense uh, to do that. But in most cases, you want to you want to make sure that your queries are answered by one or, or even a, a bounded set of partitions. And you want to avoid these things we call fan outs, which is you issue a query. It doesn't know which partition to go to, so it hits all of them. That is bad from a performance slash latency perspective. It's also bad just from a compute usage perspective. You're wasting compute. It's not efficient. If you want to realize kind of the promise of a NoSQL database, which is this in theory or theoretically, you can get unlimited compute and unlimited storage, right? Because it's a scale out. You just keep throwing more servers at it. But to do that, you have to be efficient with the design and have to be efficient with how you access the data. And so spreading that right across a large number of partitions, across a large number of computers is good because you're fully saturating all of that throughput that you've provisioned, that you're paying for. And then conversely, on the read side, you want to make sure that your queries are efficient and not wasting time talking to computers or partitions that they don't need to be talking to. The weird thing is that at, is that you can end up with things that is essentially at odds with each other. Because in some cases, you have a read-heavy scenario and a write-heavy scenario simultaneously. So how do I solve for this, where I want to distribute writes as evenly as possible across as many partitions as possible, but then ha- have queries be answered by just one partition? Sometimes you can't, it's not possible with a single partition strategy. So what we tell customers is, hey, measure the cost for those queries. And then if it makes sense, use something like a change feed and then copy that data into another container with a different partition key that you can use to serve queries, right? Or maybe even a third container. But these are things you would never have to think about in a SQL world, right? You just kind of put your data into tables, write your queries or your stored procs or whatever, maybe tune some indexes in there, uh, and then off you go. For a database like Cosmos, nope, not really. It's That's kind of the hardest part is there's, it's a bit he- it's a bit front loaded in terms of kind of the concepts you have to understand to be re- to to realize the, the the kind of the promise of it of of getting this really super scalable database that has high availability and insane latency. But you have to you have to know how to design for it. So on that, so it I, I did have a question halfway through, which was, is this can Azure just not do that for me? Because as John mentioned earlier, I don't want to deal with the database. But it sounds like it sounds like that's probably a no. So then the follow up question is, how can I fix it once I've got it wrong? Because I'm going to get it wrong. Like if I had a if I had a had an animal database, and I was like, the best way to partition this is by the first letter of the name of the animal, and then I find out that's terrible. And age is a much better way to partition. How do I fix it? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the observation is correct. There's, there is no magic bullet for this. Like relational databases have been around for 50 years and you've got 50 years of computer scientists throwing their brains at it on make, how to make that make query engines super efficient, super smart. Like they can almost read your mind as to what you want to do. And you could really write some really awful queries and things like SQL Server will do just fine because they kind of, there's so much time and effort putting into making query engines that are just super efficient. Not so much with databases like this, uh, but we are making it better uh, to try to help make that 
easier for customers. One of the kind of recent things we released was this thing called hierarchical partitioning. Um, and it's kind of as the name implies, you have a hierarchy of partitions, uh, which is great, especially if you're like one scenario would be like kind of a, a multi-tenant SaaS scenario. Let's just say I've got, uh, I've, I'm a, like a SaaS company and I have customer A, customer B, and then like Microsoft as customer C and customer A and B are tiny, like mom and pop shop. If I use customer as my partition key, uh, I'm going to end up with some problems there because Microsoft's probably going to blow up my partition size of 20 gig. Also, they're going to have way more requests. Um, how could I solve that? Well, I could do a, a synthetic key and conjoin kind of multiple properties together to do that. But it gets a little wonky because then you have to start shucking around all these other pieces of data that may or may not be in your queries. Hierarchical partitioning can solve this because what you can do is you can define like a hierarchy of partitions. So let's just say I've got my customer ID as my top level partition key. I can then have like a secondary of like department ID. So now I can get, and maybe there I can get a little more evenly spread in terms of data and request, or I can even go down to say employee ID and have that third level. So now I can at least have queries that I can have some kind of bounding on them that for data that's more logical. So there's one area. The second on kind of moving data yeah, we right the second do not have kind of like a big red easy button on, oh, I made a terrible choice for my partition and I need to I need to fix it because partitioning is relates to the physical storage of the data. You can't just like change it. It's immutable. We do have something available on GitHub. Maybe I can send you a link for that. It's this live data migrator. It's a project we created. Uh, it stands up a, a web app and app services. You just enter in some information like what's my source, what's my destination, what's the partition key, and then this thing will run like a like a job using our change feed and copy the data from one one container to another. Um, that's the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, it's just crack it open Visual Studio, writing code using our SDK and then using change feed. Eventually, we want to do something where you can just push a button. Did that answer your question? I have a feeling I missed a part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that answered the question. Uh, there's no magic button and it's terrible when you get it wrong and you're going to get it wrong. It is. And here's the thing is don't be afraid to iterate. Uh, you kind of got to have to get used to that. You're, you're never going to know everything. I want to say that it's uh, it's okay if you don't know everything all up at front, right? It's hard sometimes knowing all of the access patterns. That said, you don't have to know everything, right? You can apply Pareto principle here. Like if 80% of your stuff is, you know, is these set of operations you're doing, you're likely going to be just fine with the design and the partition strategy you use. Just focus on the high concurrency operations. You're almost always going to be just fine. It's software. We can change it pretty easily. We'll figure it out. So one of the great things about Cosmos uh, is that it's very cloud native and you, it's distributed and you can leverage a lot of, of that sort of capabilities. What are the What are the mindsets and and things that you have to keep in mind when sort of using Cosmos that way. Right. So definitely cloud native. I mean, it's native to Azure. There's no, I mean, there's an emulator, but there really is no offline version of this thing. It's not meant to run anywhere else other than in Azure. One of the unique aspects of this that sometimes throws people for a loop is, you know, Cosmos has this built-in replication. It's really, it's really simple uh, to set up replication in Cosmos. You just kind of pull up the replicate data. 
uh, Blade and Cosmos and just select which region you want to replicate data into. And we will automatically and seamlessly replicate anything you write into Cosmos to whatever regions you want. Uh, that includes every single region in Azure. We're a ring zero service. They call us ring zero. That basically means you have to have Cosmos in the region to bring, bring the region up. Um, so we're in every single region, even the sovereign clouds. However, uh, you know, when you're designing for the cloud, I mean, hopefully the, one of the things you're, you're looking to take advantage of is the fact that the, you can deploy into multiple regions, right? And that's nice because you can load balance across those regions. You can, uh, you can get good performance and low latency because my customers in Europe are hitting my European endpoint. For my app and customers in America are hitting that one and customers in Asia are hitting that one or Australia are hitting ones down there. Uh, that's great, right? The other cool thing is because I'm deployed into multiple regions, I can survive regional outages or other kinds of weird things that happen from time to time. Uh, I just, you know, uh, update my DNS load balancer or let it TTL out and fail over to another secondary region. Cosmos, with that, with its native replication built in, uh, is perfectly suited for these types of scenarios where you are building and deploying distributed applications, right? Which is fundamentally what these things are. As yep. a distributed database, we will natively replicate that data uh, to whatever regions you want, and then serve it up uh, so that not only your front end, the front end of your app, snappy in terms of response times, but the, the access to that data is now snappy, and that's actually what's really going to make your app seem fast, right? Is the lower that latency is, that is the low latency is performance, mm -hmm. uh, right? The faster it is, then of course it's higher performing. Um, and we can survive those regional outages because we're replicating data uh, within there. And the way we replicate that data is you know, we have this thing called you know, consistency levels or consistency models. Um, and these aren't like, this isn't like consistency in an acid semantic or syntax uh, uh, meaning. Uh, it's actually more around how, is, uh, how consistent is your data across all these different regions, right? And so you govern kind of that consistency behavior and that replication behavior using these consistency levels that we have in there. And so you can replicate it uh, uh, using strong consistency, uh, which is fine, uh, except uh, the latency for your writes is going to take a, a big hit because uh, for us to provide those strong consistency guarantees, which means all of your data everywhere is the same, uh, you have to replicate it and act it and then com and then uh, commit it and then act it back. Uh, so that that can drastically impact the latency of your application, at least for the writes. Um, or you can use a weaker level of consistency. Uh, it's async or an asynchronous level of consistency, and then you'll get better availability or uh, well, yeah, better availability. You get better latency, um, but you may you give up the the lack of that perfect consistency for that data everywhere. So. That's kind of a trade-off that users have to make or they have to understand, right? Like this data, just because you write it into, say, East US does not mean that it is instantly available in every single region worldwide. Hmm. Like this, like the data has to go over a, over, a, over a WAN. The fastest that could possibly go is the speed of light. And of course, it's over a WAN. So there's NICs and switches and routers yep. and God knows what else in between. So it takes a while for data to get there. So you, you, it's very hard to have perfectly consistent data over a WAN. The other problem too is, uh, and I can tell you this because I worked on Azure networking is, uh, WANs can be flaky at times. Uh, and you have no idea. Lots of external things can impact the WAN. Some guy in a backhoe can drop his bucket through a, set, a metro circuit leading into the data center 
and whoop, all of a sudden your city, your data center, your region is gone. Uh, or uh, some clown uh, in a ship in the Suez Canal drops his anchor and cuts a transatlantic cable uh, connecting Europe and Asia. This stuff actually happens, uh, by the way, which is why I bring it up. But WANs can be flaky. And so you don't know. You can lose connectivity to a region for whatever reason. It could be anything, power, network, whatever. Um, so you have to be able to survive that. And I guess kind of, yeah, that's my point is, is when you're dealing with these things, you have this, these, these concepts of uh, you know, cap theorem, which is I have to, if I lose network connectivity between my regions, I either can choose for consistency means I'm going to choose something like strong consistency because I need my data to be the same everywhere, or I can choose availability. Uh, because if mm. I lose a region, um, I, I can't sec- I can't take any more rights. I break the consistency guarantee. So that's one trade-off. And then the other one is, okay, network is working fine. Uh, but if I want perfectly consistent data, then I have to trade latency. That's pack LC. And the LC is latency or consistency. So that's the trade. You have to make this these trade-offs when you're dealing with data that's distributed over a WAN, over a network like this. So you want consistent data? That's great. Your rights are going to take a long time, or at least longer than they would otherwise take. Or uh, you can have consistency, uh, or you have the latency. If I want low latency, great. Uh, but I'm going to give up that consistency for that data. What are, what are some of the development implications of making those, you know, if I, if I say, well, I want to handle availability or something like that, but how do I, how does, from a developer perspective, do you handle that? consistency issue. Yeah. So these types of decisions are typically made by folks who care about kind of what are the RPO and RTO goals or objectives for an application. Like if I, uh, and I challenge customers on this because there are, I have customers coming in there say, I need strong consistency and I need <laughs> to replicate data across three continents. And I'll ask them, I'm like, well, what is your, what's your tolerance for data loss? Like what is your RPO? They'll come back and they'll say, well, I can tolerate a little data loss. And I'm like, well, then you don't need strong consistency because functionally the, the consistency model you choose is a, that's your dial on the, on, on your RPO. So if you need an RPO zero, you cannot lose a single byte of data. Then yeah, you should use strong consistency. Um, but if you can tolerate a little bit of data loss, then you maybe don't need it. The other one is kind of an, an RTO uh, perspective. The problem with, strong consistency is if I lose a region, even a read region, not forget the rights. If I lose a read region, I can't accept any more rights, which functionally means I'm no longer available. So if I need very low RTO, um, I can't use something like strong consistency. I need to be able to continue accepting rights to a region or serving reads from another region if the region should fail hmm. and our SDK will do that. So if, uh, if you're reading data from say West us and, and you're writing data to East us and West us goes down, uh, your app will redirect to East us and start reading data from there. And it does so seamlessly. If you're not taking advantage of this multi-region environment where you can replicate this data, if a region's down, you're, you're down for how knows how long, right? Sometimes these outages can last for a while regardless of what cloud it is, right? Every And let me be clear, everybody goes down, right? I feel like a lot of people focus on those types of metrics and those types of things to help them make the decisions that, well, we need strong consistency because if if there's a problem with the, the Cosmos DB or the data store or something like that, we need to be prepared for it, except that they didn't architect their application 
to to be available in other regions or, or have other degradation of service or anything like that. So I feel like that might be a premature optimization sometimes when that conversation is happening, but you know. It's uh look, so you don't have to run multi-region. We are the only database that provides five nines of availability because we offer that multi-region. And you have to you have to replicate into two plus regions to to get that level of that availability SLA. Uh, mm-hmm. If you will, so um, but there's no other database that's giving five nines of availability, and the only and the reason we can do it is because we can survive regional outages. So if a network goes down, if power whatever goes down into a region, that's fine. Your data is replicated somewhere else. You can redirect uh, your request elsewhere. So, by the way, the other thing too uh, is we're the only database with a latency SLA as well, which is unique. Some apps are latency sensitive. Uh, but we have a, a latency SLA. It's less than 10 milliseconds for a kilobyte of data at P99, which is pretty good. And in fact, P50 is more like more like four or five milliseconds. I mean, you're getting into like cache territory. So in fact, we even have a cache now. So and that latency is like one to two milliseconds. So you've mentioned already uh, Microsoft Learn, but are there other resources that you might point people to who are looking to get started with Cosmos DB? What what are some of the the good ones out there? So our blog is a good place to start. Uh, it's devblogs.microsoft.com slash Cosmos DB. Uh, devblogs is where all of the, the .NET blog is. There's a bunch of blogs all hosted out there. Uh, C Sharp blog. There's some data ones out there too. So devblogs.microsoft.com slash CosmosDB. That's our blog. Uh, we have a little link aggregator site, which has a lot of getting started stuff. That's uh, developer.azurecosmosdb.com. And there's a bunch of stuff hanging off of there. There's links to our, our Try Cosmos experience. So you can try Cosmos for free. You don't even need a credit card. So unlike like Azure, if you want to sign up for Azure, you have to get, you have to slap down a credit card. Try Cosmos. You don't need any of that. You just log in with your Microsoft account, like a Outlook or Hotmail or whatever you got. Uh, And then just create a new Cosmos account. It's good for 30 days. You can open up the portal and download a quick start and run it on your app and start playing with it. See how the SDK works. Uh, We have quick starts for .NET, Java, Node.js, Python. I think there's a Xamarin app in there as well. Uh, that site, the Azure or the developer.azurecosmosdb.com, uh, lots of links to lots of great content like architecture guides and from Architecture Center, some GitHub repos you can download and actually have samples, architectures, uh, kind of like the pretty Visios and stuff uh, as well. It also has a link to our podcast. Uh, so I run a weekly podcast. Yeah, it's a lot of starting to get some traction. That's uh, on the site as well. This just aka MS slash Cosmos DB live TV. That's every live every Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, or you can come check it out offline as well or on demand. It's uh, It focused pretty heavily about lots of new features, but there's lots of good uh, episodes in there that just have some really great deep technical content. There's a guy on our team, Matthias. Uh, he's the lead dev on our .NET SDK. Uh, he has a, there's, there's a great episode. I think it's episode 24 where he kind of goes into all of the optimizations for our .NET SDK. So he'll talk about things like HTTP proxy, custom serializers. There's, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. He explains what all of the response and sub-response or sub-status codes are. 
that comeback and what they mean. Probably one of the longest episodes we had. I think it went for almost an hour and a half, but there was so much good content in there. Uh, I would definitely go and look through the the back the catalog of episodes and find his and talk about all the .NET performance uh, tweaks and stuff like that. Oh, they can. You know what else they can do too is uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at AzureCosmosDB.com. We're constantly tweeting out interesting stuff. We obviously all our announcements go through there uh, as well. Uh, I monitor that Twitter account probably to an unhealthy extent. Uh, so if people have questions and I, I do get them, um, I keep an eye on that thing so people can ask questions and I can try and help them as best as Twitter will allow. In some cases, if it's a, if you're trying to have a design discussion, Twitter is not really the best forum for having a in-depth discussion about that, but you can try. All right. Uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? I think just keeping a beginner's mind about everything is probably one of the things that's been most helpful to me, most just from a, a learning standpoint, right? Like I try, even if I think I know something, if I try to remain humble about it, I will always surprise myself as to how little I know, right? It's that same, it's that same Dunning-Kruger thing. What is it? Is it uh, the more you know, the less you know, or something like that? Or the, another thing early on in my career that I think helped me a lot is... Um, I really went out of my way to go learn different programming languages. It took me a long time to learn and get really proficient at like VB, uh, even though that VB is not that hard. And also I kind of was kneecapped in that VB does not really give you full access to the system. Uh, it wasn't until I got into C++ that I realized what the hell am I doing? More, the more languages I learned, the faster I got at it. Like after that, I picked up Java pretty quick. After I realized that everything kind of does this. It, it, it is that the they all roughly do the same thing. They all do it in a slightly different way, and they all have their own idiosyncrasies. Um, but once I understood kind of the basics, then um, and and kind of those I guess core computer science uh, kind of concepts, then mm-hmm. um, it just was a matter of then okay, how do they implement it, uh, and then going and learning that. But it got easier learning. It happened faster the, the more languages I learned. Well, uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, Mark, Mark J. Brown, uh, at Mark J. Brown. Um, and you can tweet at me if you have questions, or you can tweet at Azure Cosmos DB as well. If you have questions on, hey, I want to learn Cosmos, or where can I find information about anything Cosmos related, just, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm, like I said, it's up all day long. Uh, so I'll see your, I'll see your, your tweet. I also monitor Stack Overflow as well, uh, and I'm, we'll, I will answer questions on there as much as I possibly cl- I can. So if people want to ask questions on Stack Overflow, they can. I will hopefully see it. Uh, there's other people on there too that help answer questions, which is great. Uh, that's part of my, you know, part of my goal is hopefully growing a bigger community of folks that'll help people. Oh, there's also a uh, I, the, my new user group. Uh, it's uh, Meetup. Uh, no, it's great. It's got a really long, obnoxious name. It's uh, Meetup.com slash Azure dash Cosmos dash DB dash Global dash User dash Group. Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. Really do appreciate you joining us this evening. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Have me back sometime if you guys want. Uh, always happy to talk to you and and just talk to developers about Cosmos. That was Mark Brown. 
Mark is a 20-year Microsoft veteran and has worked across a number of areas, including mobile, maps, security, and web. Mark has been on Azure since 2011 and has worked on Azure Web App Service, Redis Cache, Azure Networking, and Azure Cosmos DB. Mark is passionate about distributed systems and databases, cloud computing, and growing the developer community around Azure and Cosmos DB. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!